Welcome to the Grove Church Podcast and thegrovekc.com. Our mission as a church is to encourage people to discover true treasure in Jesus Christ. We hope you find today's teaching helpful and encouraging. Thanks for joining us. Well, hey, good morning and again, welcome to The Grove. If we've not yet met, my name is Christian. I am the lead pastor of The Grove and we're so glad you're with us worshiping together today. You know, we moved here about four years ago, my family and I, and one of my favorite first impressions of the Midwest was the shock of seeing the Flint Hills for the first time. As we made our way up I-35, coming to visit, we'd never been to this area. And I remember the rolling and rugged fields of green were breathtaking. And they took me back to when I was introduced to the music of Rich Mullins. Some of you may know who that is, but uh, Rich Mullins was was born in Indiana. Uh, He was a singer-songwriter who spent his formative years in Wichita. Um, And a friend in college played one of his songs for me. The song was The Color Green. And initially, the style of music, it wasn't really my cup of tea. It wasn't anywhere close to the kind of music I listened to at that time. But I was struck by the beauty of the lyrics. As a a new Christian, relatively new Christian, it it just was breathtaking to think about the, the things that he said in this song. So I want you to hear some of the lyrics from The Color Green. It starts this way. It says, The moon is a sliver of silver, like a shaving that fell on the floor of a carpenter's shop. And every house must have its builder. And I awoke in the house of God, where the windows are mornings and evenings, stretched from the sun across the sky, north to south. And on my way to early meeting, I heard the rocks cry out. I heard the rocks crying out. Be praised for all your tenderness by these works of your hands. Suns that rise and rains that fall to bless and bring to life your land. Look down upon this winter wheat and be glad that you have made. Blue for the sky and the color green that fills these fields with praise. Driving through the Flint Hills for that first time, I I understood Rich's inspiration in a whole new way. As you make your way through there, the color green does indeed fill those Flint Hills with praise. Those fields are filled with praise as you watch that green just stretch across hill after hill after hill. But I want to take our attention to a more subtle line in that song. It says, and every house must have its builder, and I awoke in the house of God. So so here's Rich referring to the great outdoors, to creation. But, you know, as church people, we often use the words house of God to refer to a church building. And I really believe that both can be accurate if we understand how God thinks of these things, how he thinks of creation and how he thinks of buildings that we use for worship and for the gathering of our churches. And so uh, here we are with our timeline approaching just a few weeks before we begin meeting uh, in our regularly in this brand new space uh, there on Locust Street. I, I wanted to take these next few weeks to help us to, uh, to consider before we move in what this new space is and really what it's for. So that's the meaning of this this series, Open House, is for us to think about those things. 
And here it is simply, just simply stated, if the building, right, that new building that we're moving into, just like the, the gym that we used to meet in, if that is to be considered a house of God, then, then here's the thing, it must serve the function of the true house of God, which is creation. And that function is, in a word, hospitality. Okay, so again, over these next few weeks, we're going to be learning about hospitality. But here's the big idea that I want us to start with today. And that's this, that in creation, God has welcomed all of us to his world. Okay? In, creation, in creation, God is welcoming us to his world. Every single one of us, if we are a human on this planet, have been welcomed to his world, to this world that he is, has created. And we're, we're going to turn today and look at a, a few verses, just a, a key passage in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts there, the, the apostle and church starter, Paul, he, he comes across a group of people in the city of Athens. Okay? He's making his way around, trying to, to spread the news of Jesus who's been resurrected. We just celebrated that last Sunday. And as this is going on, he makes his way into Athens. And what we're told there is that Athens at this time, the city is quite religious. And so they have altars to dozens of gods. Okay? They've got these altars all over, uh, giving praise or, or honor to all kinds of gods. And they're trying to make sure they don't miss one. Okay? And so they even have an altar to the unknown god. Again, just in case they might have left somebody out. Equal opportunity uh, idolaters here, really, is what's going on. And, and so Paul, as he makes his way there, he sets out to introduce them to the one that they've missed. Okay? He uses this altar to the unknown God as a starting point in addressing them. He, he's, he's saying, look, I, I want you to know that this one that you're wondering about, that you think you might have missed, actually, you have missed him, but you can know him. And so he tells them this. He, he says this, Acts chapter 17 verses 24 and 25. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Okay. And so, Again, this idea here, this is where I want you to see here, is that what Paul has told them is that, that really this world is God's. There is a one true God, and this world is His. And, and, and more than that, what he wants them to understand is we'll get there as we, we read the rest of uh, a part of how he's going to address them, is that he's saying, look, this world that God has created, it, it was a world that has us in mind. It, it really does have humanity in mind. So I want us to, to see what he's getting at here and telling us that he's welcomed all of us to his world. He starts out and he says uh, the, this idea that um, the God who made the world and everything in it, right? He, he, he tells us about that God and he says he is Lord of heaven and earth. He's telling them first and foremost, again, that he has made the world and everything in it. And what he's really getting at is he's made it hospitable, okay? What he wants them to understand is that he has made this world hospitable. This is what we find. We go all the way back, okay, to the very beginning. We go to Genesis chapter 1, and there in Genesis chapter 1, okay, what, what we see here, and we're not going to read, the, I have for you Genesis 1, 3 through 8. I just want you to, to hear verse 3. It says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then into verse 4, it said, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. 
And then verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning, one day. And then so God continues on, and we have these, what are known as the days of creation. But I want us to recognize that, that each of those days, in some form or fashion, God is observing his creation. In fact, what he's telling us as he does that is that not just good enough is good enough. But instead, he's acknowledging that, that these things are good. And then as he goes on in creation, when mankind is created, he says it is very good. You see, God's not just out to make a world that's, that's okay. Right? Just a world that is utilitarian, that just happens to function in, in the basic functions. No, God is creating a world that's hospitable. The creation starts with there, there is chaos, we're told. that there's, God has sprung everything. He's, he's brought matter into existence, but it lacks form. There's this void, and he is bringing order and form into that void. He's creating a, a hospitable world. In fact, we find this even in science. What we, there's a, a, a study when we talk about uh, the, the earth and we talk about the way this world was created. There are conditions that make the earth hospitable. There's something known as the fine-tuning of the universe or the fine-tuning even of just our earth. And something related to that is the Goldilocks principle. There's this concept known as the Goldilocks principle. And what the Goldilocks principle means is that there are certain conditions that are just right, that allow for, uh, for, for life to exist. Okay? And they're just right, right? You recognize the Goldilocks principle. It's just right. And, and the number of attributes included on the list ranges by different investigators. But, so it can go from dozens to hundreds. But, but the, the calculated odds of getting each attribute's value just right um, it also varies, but, but there's a probability estimation of one chance in 10 to the 250th power, okay? That, that, and that's kind of middle of the pack as far as these different estimates, that all these different conditions, whatever the list is, that, that middle of the pack, the conditions that are needed for life to exist and, and the conditions that make Earth hospitable to humans, that, that that's the, the chances of all of those existing at once, and yet they do, okay? 10 with 250 zeros behind it. Those are the kinds of conditions that, that we've overcome in order for this earth to exist. There's things on the list are, are things like the earth's exact distance from the sun. Okay? It's, we're in just the right distance from the sun to let allow water to exist uh, in, in abundance on the earth. And, and there's things like the precise axial tilt of the earth. There's its mass and diameter, its atmosphere, its magnetic field, its 24-hour rotation rate, its crust, and, and again, the fact that there is liquid water on this earth. This is an incredible uh, probability. I mean, the, the probability here is, is unreal. And yet, the earth exists as it does that allows for life to exist. We, are, we live on this planet because God has made it hospitable to humans. Okay? So he, he has made it, the earth, hospitable. But the other thing that we find as we look into what Paul has said here is that not only has he made the earth hospitable, this, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, but we also find that he doesn't need our help. Okay? He goes on. Paul says, God does not live in shrines made by hands, or some translations say he doesn't live in temples made by human hands. And what Paul's getting across here is that God is not vulnerable. 
and in need of shelter, right? I mean, that, that's part of our, our needs, our basic needs, is we're vulnerable, and without shelter of some kind at different points, we'll, we'll perish. We, we need to be able to, to stay away from the elements in some form or fashion. God's not vulnerable in that way. And he's certainly not restricted to temples like the, the, these Athenians believed that their gods were, that, that they needed these temples in order to, to exist. They needed them for, for shelter. They needed this as a way in order for them to be a part of what was going on in the world. They, they were vulnerable. They were in need of something. Paul says, no, no, the true God, he's not like that. But, but here's what's astounding. Even though he's not vulnerable, he's not in need of shelter, God does live in temples made by his hands. Right? He doesn't live in shrines made by human hands, but he does live in temples made by his hands, which are us. The Bible goes on and tells us in 1 Corinthians that, that you and I, and together God's people as the church, are a temple for the Holy Spirit of God. So God will dwell in temples made by his own hands. But he doesn't need temples made by us in order to live. He goes on if, to understand God doesn't need our help. He goes on, he says this, that uh, God doesn't need in, anything, right? He, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, okay? He, he doesn't need anything. And, and the idea here is that not only does he not need a, a temple, he doesn't need a shelter, but he also doesn't need worship, okay? I mean, he doesn't need, yeah, he, he doesn't cling for our worship or, or clamor for our worship. Worship is, is the idea here. God is not served by human hands. Now, worship comes as we use our hands to his glory. That can be in music. It can be in anything we do. But, but what, what Paul wants us to understand is that worship is not giving God something that he lacks. Okay? It, it, God is not up there, or, or not, he's not up there. He's not out there. He's not where he is with this insecure need saying, oh man, I'm really Jones and if somebody doesn't give me some kind of worship, I don't know what I'm going to do. That's not the idea. God is not, he doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our worship. There's not something lacking in God that says, I got to create human beings in order to, in order to satisfy this need that I have for lesser beings to worship me, the greater being. No, he's saying he doesn't need us. Which gets to our last point here. Instead, he wants our fellowship. Okay? God has made this world hospitable. He has welcomed us into it. And you say, well, why? Well, it's because he wants our fellowship. Not because he's lacking something, but because he wants to share who he is with us. He goes on and says, God made, he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. These are gifts. Our lives, our breath. Everything we have, these are gifts. They make us able to enjoy this world that he's created for us. And again, he has humankind in mind in creating the world. This is what Paul goes on. It is why he goes on to tell them. He says in verse 26, he says, From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human, heart, human art and imagination. 
Okay, there's a lot there, but I want us to see, right? This is not a picture of God as some kind of cosmic watchmaker who, who simply winds everything up and then just lets it roll. That's been a popular view of God through the centuries. He, he just kind of got everything started and then stepped away and said, okay, whatever will be, will be, and we'll just let it go. That, that's not the picture we're given here. We're, we're given a picture here of a God who is intimately involved in our lives. He, he has determined the uh, times and the boundaries of where we live so that we, what, might seek him. Right? I mean, again, we can go back into Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. What do we find there? We find that God made humanity a- as a way of enjoying fellowship. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. You see, God, when he creates us, again, he doesn't create us out of a need. He's created this world. He makes it hospitable. And then he wants us to join with him. Fellowship is not just, hey, we get to hang out and do things that don't matter. No, fellowship comes as we are engaged in in good, meaningful things. And God has invited us as humans to be a part of his work in the world. And so as we think about this, we think about the fact that God has has welcomed us in creation. It it makes us have to evaluate something. One, am I content being the guest? Do I think of myself as the host? The one, and you think about it, what's the difference? Well, the host is the one sort of in charge, right? The one that, that has the plan, that knows what's going on. So do I see myself as the guest or do I see myself as, first and foremost, the host? Oh, this, this, I'm here to get the party started. I'm the one who's, who's supposed to make everything happen. But instead, what we're told here is that God has welcomed us. This is his world. And so... Ask yourself, am I content being the guest? Furthermore, am I willing to admit that I'm not Lord of heaven and earth? That I am vulnerable. Unlike God, I am vulnerable. And that I do need to be served, right? I mean, God doesn't need to be served, but we do. We we need people to help us. Again, we have needs. And then ask, right? Am I willing to admit that I am not my own? Right, that... I, I really do need somebody else, that God is the one who's created me. This is a fundamental question for all of us as we think about our place in the world, it is, is again, being willing to admit, I'm not Lord of heaven and earth. I am vulnerable. I do need to be served. I am not my own. I, I am created. I'm not the creator. As we understand that, we can begin to see this world as God intends for us to see it, which is, as a place that he's made hospitable in order to welcome us. Which then leads us to the next thing, right? Because there's something wrong with this world. There's things that are wrong with how we approach our place in this world. And and when we, although we can look and say, well, this world was made hospitable, there's all kinds of things that, that are actually not just rugged, but actually that seem to reject us, right? That this world doesn't go the way we want it to go which is to say we, we need, even the world itself needs to be fixed. And so the second thing we find is that in Christ, we are welcomed into his renewed world. Paul goes on uh, in describing 
what he wants them to know there in Athens. Listen to what he says. He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. It goes on, it says, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, We'd like to hear from you again about this. Okay? What Paul is saying here is that the resurrection, that, that resurrection that we talked about last week, is actually proof that a day of reckoning is coming. And we said last week, the resurrection is proof of, of God's love for us. It's proof that, that He cares for us, that, that He is engaged with, with the realities that we are dealing with. But it's also proof that there is a reckoning coming, that, that we have to, to each take stock of our place in this world and our place before a holy and righteous God who's made this world to welcome us, but to whom we have often said, I, I don't want your welcome. And so what we find as well is because of sin, because of the sin that leads us in rebellion against our Creator, the world also is corrupted. It, it's not as it was initially. It's not as God initially intended it to be. But the hope of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection, is that someday not only will our earthly, will our bodies be resurrected, like Jesus' body was resurrected, but this whole, all of creation will be resurrected. It will be renewed. It will be remade. And so in Christ, we're welcomed into his renewed world. That, that's the, the hope that he's giving to uh, these folks here, is that there is coming a day when there will be a reckoning. But the resurrection tells us that we can be on the right side of that reckoning. And so as Christ followers, as we hear this now, as we can look back and see what Paul was trying for, to help those folks understand, what we can, though, do is, is realize that we want people to be prepared for that day of reckoning. And not only do we want them to be prepared for a day out in the future, we want for ourselves and for others for our days to be filled with knowing God. We want our days now to be filled with, with knowing Him, with the fellowship that He intends. And what happens is, as, as Christ followers, our spaces, where we live, where we go, where we gather, these are the places where God dwells, right? He, he lives in us. And so as we go, we're actually these like mobile spots, these mobile hot spots where heaven and earth meet because God himself dwells in us. And so we take with us the, this hope of a renewed world. And, and that's part of what we then get to, to share in. See, the... the the result of these two welcomes, right, the welcome in creation and the welcome of, uh, of the hope of a renewed world, there's a result of these welcomes, and that's that we're not just guests, but actually family, right? As we're welcomed through Christ, we move from just being guests in this world. God's intent from the very beginning was that we wouldn't simply be guests, but that we would be family. Right? There's a difference between guests and family. It's good to be a guest. That's a good thing. But guests are temporary, right? I mean, when you're a guest, it's just a temporary thing. When you're a guest, you're, you're sort of on the outside, right? You're coming in from the outside. You're acknowledged as somebody who's not, not inside a part of this. 
And when you're a guest, you're, you're subject to the plan of the host, right? You're just, the, the hosts make a plan and, and you're just subject to that. But when you're family, right? well, family is not temporary. Family is intended to be forever. I know it doesn't work that way, again, because of the, the result of sin. But, but family in God's economy is meant to be forever. And, and when you're part of the family, you're, you're on the inside, right? I mean, you, you're not just subject to the plan. You are. I mean, we have different roles in the family. But you actually know the plan. You're actually a part of enacting the plan, of welcoming the guests. God's plan all along is, is not for us to simply be guests. It's for us to be made family. And that's what's accomplished through Christ. It, when we trust Jesus, we trust his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. Again, we put ourselves on the, the right side of that ultimate reckoning. We, we secure for ourselves the hope of a renewed world, of a resurrected body getting to enjoy this world in all its fullness as God intended it, in its fully hospitable form. But that then changes how we live here and now. You see, instead, instead of just seeing ourselves as guests coming to, to enjoy something, in gratitude, we're actually called to join God in extending his welcomes. I thought those welcomes are, are, are important, but they're important for our days now, not, not just for some time in the future. Instead, we're called in gratitude to join God in extending his welcomes. Sometimes when I've been driving now, I mean, I've been through those Flint Hills a number of times, driving back and forth to see friends and family in Texas or, or going to Wichita different times. But sometimes as I make my way through those Flint Hills, I've, I've daydreamed driving through those, those hills thinking of the Native Americans and the explorers who experienced that land before, it was, you know, before there was ever a, a highway rolling through it. Right? When they experienced those people that got to experience that land completely undeveloped. I, again, I'm not, like, I'm not asleep, but, but you start thinking about this as I'm driving along. And I, I do this in a number of places. That kind of just imagine, what was this land like when, when nobody had really been here? And you were among the first people getting to see just the wonders of, of North America. But especially going through those Flint Hills and thinking about that, uh, you know, and, and just the, the wonders of that, um, it, it got me thinking, it got me going down this rabbit trail uh, this past week. I, I was prepping to, to address you guys, to, to think about these things, what it means for us to be the guests of God. And I, I happened down a certain rabbit trail, and it was a rabbit trail that took me back in history to the Dust Bowl. It's that phenomena that happened on the South Plains here, mostly in the Midwest, but the South Plains that, that was a key part of the Great Depression, okay? a key factor or a key characteristic of that time. One author described it, the Dust Bowl, like this. It says, American meteorologists rated the Dust Bowl the number one weather event of the 20th century. And as they go over the scars of the land, historians say it was the nation's worst prolonged environmental disaster. But here's the thing. The Dust Bowl, which was, again, the, the, this time in the, the Midwest, time in our nation's history, talking the 30s, okay, going back to the 1930s, and, and we had uh, land that was in, in shambles, just all kinds of problems, okay, but, but here's the thing. The Dust Bowl wasn't just the result of prolonged drought, okay, that contributed to it. 
And it, but it also didn't just start with storms like this one. Okay, here's a picture. This is maybe what you think of when you hear the Dust Bowl, right? It's just wall of dust making its way across towns, across these, these small towns in the Midwest. And, and while, again, these walls of dust, help, that's why it's called the Dust Bowl, um, contributed to the devastation of that time, it doesn't just start with the drought. You see, those storms, those dust storms were possible in part because, um, because of a plowing frenzy that happened across the Midwest in pursuit of riches in the wheat harvest. You see, all those plains, those, those grass-filled plains, that, that winter wheat, well, that was plowed up for, for wheat all across the southern plains. They were just plowed up. The natural grasslands were just plowed up over the course of decades. And one, again, another writer talking about this says, the millions of acres of prairie grass, which had held down the topsoil and dirt for millennia, had been almost completely plowed up in a few short decades. The land had been stripped naked. Okay? That, that's what had gone on. So where you had grass holding that dirt down, it had all been plowed up. And then when the wheat failed, then what happened is you had just all this dust and there was nothing to hold down that dust as then these meteorological phenomena went on. And so all that dust just got built into these storms and you have this, this mess. But here's the thing, the cause of the Dust Bowl goes back even further. In fact, my little rabbit trail took me from the Dust Bowl to Buffalo. Here's what I mean. Prior to 1800, it is estimated that in North America, there were at least 60 million American bison roaming uh, through North America. Okay, 60 million roaming the plains, especially the, the center part of the United States. By 1889, okay, approximately 100 years later, okay, so pre-1800 to 1889, there were just, what estimated, there were just 541 uh, buffalo remaining. Okay, from 60 million to 541. You can see this picture just, just kind of shows the shrinkage of the population. But the numbers are staggering, right? 60 million down to 541. So why on earth did this happen? Why did what were these buffalo that just were everywhere, why were they wiped out? Well, they were wiped out by American settlers who had really two things in mind. One, they wanted to control the Native Americans who lived off of the buffalo, who, who harvested them, but they harvested them responsibly now. Doesn't mean they weren't guilty of things themselves, but, but that's what they had lived for. And so the settlers wanted to control the Native Americans. And so by wiping out this, this source of all kinds of things for the Native Americans, it gave them control over uh, those populations. And then also because the buffalo were pretty easy pickings. They, I mean, there were plenty of them. And so it was a, a, an easy and profitable harvest. I mean, they, they were just used in all kinds of things. They became used in, in the development of our nation, but used in this incredibly irresponsible way. You say, well, okay, that's sad and, and terrible, and again, we can talk a long time about the demise of the American buffalo, but what does it have to do with the Dust Bowl? Well, here's what was fascinating. You see, the Dust Bowl was actually caused, in great part, because of the eradication of the buffalo. Because, see, the hooves of the buffalo were shaped in such a way that with millions upon millions of buffalo roaming those middle plains, they would aerate the land. 
and that would allow the moisture that, that, that those areas did get to penetrate deeply down into the soil and allow for those grasses to grow. Moreover, with all those buffalo roaming the plains, they fertilize the land, right? You know how that happened. And so when they disappeared, eventually there came a reckoning. And eventually, with the lack of that aeration, the lack of the fertilization, the grasses stopped growing the way they did. You add on the mass plowing that took place, and it became literally a perfect storm. You say, well, do you see the connection? Right? This land was hospitable. God had created it to be hospitable. This land, which once had been home to 60 million buffalo, now, and marked by a kind of fertility that really drew comparisons to the promised land. I mean, that's, that's how people viewed it. That kind of land was nearly destroyed because it was used rather than stewarded. Because settlers served themselves rather than serve others. What they did is failed to recognize the gracious welcome of God. And that time was marked by greed rather than gratitude. It was just greed. How different that is from Jesus, who himself entered a foreign land and came not to be served, but to serve, and as we're told in Mark 10.45, to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus was welcomed to this world by his Father, by, by, by God. And Jesus stewarded his life to the glory of God. But he did that also so that we could be welcomed into God's family. And when we come to grips with the reality of the reckoning and the reconciliation that is found in Christ, we, we can recognize that the places that God provides, whether a park, a palace, or an odd fellow's lodge, really are meant to be received with gratitude. Received with gratitude and then shared. Utilized to extend the welcomes of creation and recreation. You see, my friends, whatever house God provides for us, may it be used by us to fill this world with praise. I want to encourage you. There's not a lot to... We're going to talk in the coming weeks about what that hospitality looks like in our own lives and especially in the life of our church. But I want to encourage you this week to, to give God praise, to, to spend time in gratitude to the Lord, in gratitude to Him for the shelter that you have. Please spend time in gratitude, uh, in prayer, thanking God for the place that He's provided us, thanking God for the place that He's provided us in the past. These are good gifts to a God who has welcomed us into His world. And also, through Christ, welcomes us into the world to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. You are the host, and we are the guests. But we are guests who you, through Christ, are making into your family, are bringing into your family. And God, I pray that you would use us as a people who have been given access to the house of God, use us as a people who welcome others into the family of God. 
where we need your help. Grow us in gratitude and use us for your glory. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray that you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at thegrovekc.com for more ways to connect with us. And join us again next week for another podcast from The Grove Church. Have a great day. Thank you.